Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the GeoMob Podcast. Uh, my guest today is someone who spoke at our September event in London. Um, very interesting project uh, in, in its own right, uh, uh, which is why I wanted to bring him on, but also because of some of the, the background and the... Um, choices he's trying to make as he, as he embarks on this project in terms of how to make it last for a long time. Um, so uh, a big welcome to the show for Chris Barrington-Brown. Uh, Chris, besides speaking in September, he also spoke at one of our online events uh, that we had during COVID. Um, and so it's wonderful to get him here on the show. Chris, welcome. Great. Thanks very much for uh, having me on the show. So in September, you you... You did us the honor of coming to talk about the, a new project that you're embarking upon, or I, I, I guess you've been working on it for a while now, but um, but it's all about the logistical buildup in advance of D-Day in uh, all across Britain and trying to um, uh, capture that and categorize it and, and display it and share it with people. Um, so this is a pretty immense topic, uh, and you had you had some fantastic maps and things that you showed us there. Um, Tell us about that. What, what is this project? Okay, so my background is I was a soldier for getting on for 45 years, both uh, regular and reserve. I've got a computer science degree. I'm interested in mapping. And for the last 30 years, I've been uh, running a small software company, which has been using digital geography to work out where terrorists can do things. Uh, in June of this year, I uh, turned the company into an employee ownership trust and retired. So I was worried, I suppose is the right word, for what the hell am I going to do with my time, having been busy for the last 45 years and suddenly need to, uh, uh, to find something to do and perhaps play to my strengths, military, history, geography, computers. Um, so I've obviously been interested in D-Day for many years, as any military person would be. Uh, you read about it. And what frustrated me so much was that every book I read started with them storming ashore with their bayonets glinting in the sun and jumping out of their airplanes and so on. And I was wondering, how did they get there? How were they trained and equipped and hidden and mended when they broke and fed and all of those things? Because uh, there's a, a military uh, aphorism which goes uh, that um, uh, amateurs talk about tactics and professionals talk about logistics. Uh, and I believe it was also Eisenhower who said something along the lines of that tactics is the art of the logistically possible. And unless you have the right logistics, you can't achieve anything in a military sphere. So I looked around for books on the subject and couldn't find anything. There was very little on, on how the whole logistic process had been built. So I thought, OK, there's something which I'm interested in. Uh, and uh, and I could probably do, so why don't I write a book in my retirement? They say everyone's got a book in them. Mine may be very dull, but, you know, it's, uh, it's something I'm interested in. And then I realized as I started doing more research that actually it isn't a book. It's a website, and it's fundamentally a map, uh, an interactive map, uh, which allows you to see what happened where and when and why and how and so on. So I decided to try to answer three questions. The first is, how did the logistics work? And that's mostly textual, but it has a geographic element to it. 
but how, for example, did vehicles flow from America in crates and then get made somewhere and then were stockpiled somewhere and then they were issued to troops and then they were waterproofed and then they broke. So how were they fixed and all those sorts of things. So that I thought was quite an interesting first question to answer. Um, and that's mostly textual. And at the moment, it's a story map with linked web maps. The next question was, what happened in my area, or indeed anybody's area within England and Wales? I, I, for, for bizarre geographic reasons, I can't get hold of Scottish mapping of the right uh, vintage, 1944-45. Uh, and also, Northern Ireland is on a different grid and therefore makes it very much more difficult to capture. So I thought, OK, I, I can set a limit of England and Wales as my, my target area. Um, but you should be able to go to a website and look at your area and see what was there. Uh, were there depots? Were there camps? Were there routes? And so on. Um, and you can start to do that now already on the website. We'll talk about that a, a bit later on. And I'm filling that with more and more and more data and going down more and more rabbit holes to, to capture the data. And then the third question, which I'm not sure I'm going to live long enough to answer because it's a very big one, is where was everybody during the six months? I've, I've set a, a time scale of the 1st of January to the 30th of June, 1944, in order to have some form of bounding to the problem. Um, because uh, we were talking about two and a half million men, perhaps 10,000 units. Um, so a, a very large number of things to go and look at. Uh, but I, I'm trying to, to capture perhaps just the artillery. I'm an artilleryman by background, so I capture the British artillery and build some form of crowdfunding, sorry, not crowdfunding, crowdsourcing um, uh, application, which enables those who are interested in the pioneers or the first tank regiment or the whatever to fill the information in. You'll remember that around the end, the 100 years anniversary of the, of the First World War, there was a huge uptick in interest in First World War history. And I think that there will be a similar one in the, in the, at the 100 years of D-Day. Uh, I may be completely wrong. Maybe no one's interested in it at all or won't be at that point. But it seems that it was one of the defining moments of the Second World War and people are interested. And for reasons which I don't understand, but people do want to travel the route that their grandfather took when he went from wherever he was in the UK to Normandy. Uh, and there's lots of information about which boats people got onto and so on, but there's very little information about how they got there. You can go to the war diaries and you can see that this particular unit started its uh, its journey in Sutton Coalfield and it moved to Camp A3 and then it moved to Hard G4 or whatever, but that doesn't mean anything. And so the idea is that you'll be able to go to the website and trace a particular unit uh, and, and uh, through through time uh, and geography and see where your grandfather or whoever you're interested in actually went. And then if you want to drive the route, you can. Okay, <laughs> lots to dive in there, into that. Yeah. I mean, this is quite an expansive project. Um, wow, I mean, very ambitious. So, yeah, first of all, we should clarify, you're working on this, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the crowdsourcing, but you're working on this by yourself in yeah. the core team, or, or you're... Absolutely, this is, this is a, a solo project at the moment. Uh, 
I think that when I get to the question three, as I suggested, I'm not sure that I'm going to live long enough to be able to do all of that work. Um, but I think I can answer questions one and two uh, myself, um, although I obviously am quite happy to take advice and uh, other sources and so on uh, from other people. Um, but uh, the question three, I would like to set up some mechanism for others to help. And at the moment, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I, I'm a techie geek. I should be able to write a, a system which does it and, and so on. But I'm still not quite sure how to roll that out, how to control it, how to do quality control. Uh, there's a whole raft of issues there, which I still haven't bottomed out. But since I think that's probably a year away, because uh, there's enough to do on questions one and two, um, then I think that I've got plenty of time to think about how to go about doing this this crowdsourcing bit. But you, you must you must be wading through an immense amount of material. I mean, you're talking London. You showed us some fascinating maps and things. But I mean, there must just be all kinds of different things that you have to sort through. Yeah, be it maps or be it I have no idea reports and. Uh, Obviously, other research that's been done on top of that, and so how? I mean, how are you processing all this? So I've I've obviously spent most of my life reading secondary material. Uh, so you know, I have a reasonable background in the military and and in uh, in D Day. Um, so I'm going back to the primary sources at the moment. I'm spending most of my time at the uh, National Archives in Kew, uh, their equivalents in Washington and Ottawa. Well, having said that, the Ottawa one is a bit difficult to access at the moment for boring technical reasons, um, and also at the British Library. Uh, so I, I started with a list of about 850 uh, files from the National Archives, and I've got through about uh, 400 of them so far. Um, and some of them you open, they obviously haven't been open for years, uh, and they, they contain the letters and signals between various units saying where they went and what they did and where the nearest hospital was and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you open a file and it's really dull and there's nothing in it at all. And then you open another file and it's absolute gold dust. Uh, so, for example, uh, I came across one in the British Library a few weeks ago which shows where every anti-aircraft gun was in Britain uh, in uh, early June of 1944. And a lot of people would go, boring. But actually, the interesting thing about it is where they decided to deploy them. So it, it asks a whole load of questions about why did they put them there and not there. Uh, for example, they put a huge amount of effort into defending Yeovil. Now, there is a Westlands uh, um, aeroplane factory there, but what my recollection is that Westlands wasn't building anything that was particularly war-defining. Now, I may be completely wrong. I, I may have got that, that wrong, but there's a rabbit hole there which I need to go down and find out from, for example, the files from the Ministry of Air Production, what was being built in Yeovil, where it was so important that they invested a lot of effort in defending it, and they didn't defend other places, which I would have thought would have been more important. Um, so there could have been a stores dump there, or there could have been a, some secret research place, which I wasn't aware of. But that's really interesting, I find. it. So going into the primary material at the TNA uh, and digging out the information and then digitizing it. Because when it's just a, 
a list of grids, it's, it doesn't tell you anything. Whereas when it's on a map, it does. But there must be so many holes for you to fall in. I mean, you might, you, there must be days you, you, you think, all right, let me get through this file. And then, you know, page one, you're, you're, at the end of the day, you're still, you know, it must take you in a thousand different directions. And... It, it, it can do. I and mean, the, the way that, that you actually do it is you, you go through the file and you photograph every page which might be interesting. Okay. Um, and uh, then you take the, the, the photographs away and, and analyze them in slightly slower time. Um, and uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm retrieving more information than I'm digitizing. Um, but then over Christmas and New Year, I'm not going to be going to the TNA. Um, so I'll, I'll then catch up, as it were. And, and, and what about maps? I mean, are, are, do these, these archives contain maps actual that, that were used and things? Yes, yes, they do. So uh, they tend to be the master copies. Uh, so this whole project started off when I saw a, a map in the D-Day Story Museum down in South Sea. Um, and it was, a, it was a map of the area where I live, you know, north of Southampton. And it was overprinted with all of the camps and the routes and the wading pits and the um, workshops and everything else. And it was one of those duh moments where I thought, hang on, of course, I'm a military guy. Every time I've been off to war or to exercise or whatever, there has been a map with an overprint on it. And of course, there must have been one for D-Day. I just hadn't thought about it. Um, and so I then, so from this one map, I then found the other 20, which make up the, the 20 embarkation areas. And all of those have been digitized and are up on the website. Um, but you go into a, uh, a file. Uh, yesterday, for example, I was looking at, uh, at medical, uh, a, a file about the medical um, plan for the central region, which is basically from, from Dorset across to um, Hampshire and up to Wiltshire. Um, and there's a map there overprinted with every hospital, every first aid post, and it differentiates between the American hospitals, the British hospitals, the um, British military hospitals as opposed to civilian ones, and so on. And uh, I, will, I will take that, and at the moment it's on a, I can't remember what, a one inch to, to um, um, five miles or something map, and I'll digitize that onto a current map, which will you'll be able to pull up open street map or um, ordnance survey topo maps in ordnance survey grids or aerial imagery as it is today and so on um, so you don't have to worry about the fact that everything has shifted from a um, the british wartime grid to the current grid and so on well when you say you're digitizing these what, do, what does that imply i mean you're taking a picture of it or you're somehow actually trying to translate and translate that into raw data that can then be used as you say, for I, I, I am tra i'm translating into raw data so i uh, using qgis i'm digitizing um capturing the features uh so if if it's a map then i am uh, i'm afraid by eye um taking the information from the old map in its projection and putting it onto a modern map in a current Ordnance Survey uh, projection. I mean, but this must be an immensely uh, uh, time-consuming process, isn't it? I mean, yeah, but I'm retired. I've got time. <laughs> wow, okay. How many hours a day are you in QGIS? I mean, oh, I, I reckon about half my time is spent on this project at the moment. Um, so it's it's like a job. I'm, I'm probably doing uh, three days a week on it, something like that.
Very cool. And, uh, okay, so now you've got the data stored. Hopefully, you're making a backup. I, I, yeah. Uh, um, so what's the next step? Now, now, now I say, you know, I, I assume that that process of just capturing the data is going to take, you know, run for 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 many months to come. But once you've got the data, how do you now then display it? Okay, so at the moment I'm capturing it in QGIS uh, and building it up as a series of layers in GeoPackage um, because the data is the most important part of all of this. And my take is that GeoPackage will still be readable in 20 years' time. Uh, and, and I've set a, a, time, a time deadline of 20 years. Now, um, hopefully I'll still be alive in 20 years but it's possible that I won't be. And also, I certainly won't survive much beyond 20 years. And we'll come on to the longevity thing a bit later. But, but I felt that GeoPackage was reasonably stable and, and open, so it would still be readable for the foreseeable future. Just doing a quick calculation here, we need at least 25 years, because you got to get to 2044, right? I mean, yes. or whatever that is, 22 years, right? Uh -huh. At a minimum, at a minimum. So. I, I believe so. And so that, that's the, I mean, you know, as I say, I might drop dead today. So who, who knows? I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. Um, but on the assumption that I've got a, another five years or so of work, then it would be available to anybody who wanted to do the research in the 10 years or so leading up to D-Day, uh, to, to the 100th anniversary of D-Day. Um, then well, the, the next... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, this gets to the, the, the other interesting aspect of this project, exactly, is how do, you, how do you ensure that as a digital resource, this is still available going forward? And in and, and your talk in London, you talked about some of the, the challenges of that. And it, it really resonated with me, and that's, a, frankly, why I wanted to get you on the show. Because I think back over the last, you know, my career working on the Internet now has been almost 25 years. And so many tech, you know, there have been so many amazing things, but so many of them have come and gone. You know, so it's so ephemeral, and you know, I, I, I can't go back and visit those old websites. They literally don't exist. You know, it, 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 it there's no tangible output. So, um, you know, and you talked about the fact that you know, if you were if you're doing this project. 200 years ago, it'd, it'd be a very straightforward thing. You know, you'd put it in a book, and the book would go on the shelf at the library, and, you know, hundreds of years from now, people can still read the book, assuming it's, uh, you know, maintained in some way, shape, or form. But in the digital realm, we don't have that confidence. Um, I guess because everything's so new, and we haven't yet, you know, managed how, uh, d defined standards of how we're going to maintain these things. So how are you approaching this problem? Well, my key thought is that the data is the most important. So I, I looked around at what, where should I keep this data? Uh, and for example, my, my commercial background would be Esri. But I look at Esri and they change their technology every three years. Um, they, they have a, a reputation for going after bright, shiny things. And I'm no longer an Esri partner, so I can say that. Um, but I, I, uh, I don't trust them. Uh, or indeed any of the other large companies, to still be supporting data formats in the long term. And so it has to be an open format, I think. Even, even if you do trust them, I mean, how many, com how many companies last for the long yeah. run? It's very few. I mean, how many companies that exist today existed 100 years ago? It, indeed, yeah, and particularly in a, tech, in, in, a, yeah. in a tech world. 
So uh, having decided on, on uh, GeoPackage, that then enables me to have a variety of different mechanisms of filling that GeoPackage and maintaining it. And at the moment, I've chosen QGIS, and I think that it's, uh, it's more likely to be long-term stable, um, certainly in the five-year timescale, maybe in the 10-year timescale. Um, and hopefully, I'll have the ability to, to change my, my uh, management system and digitizing system to something else. So if QGIS uh, stops being supported or changes its formats, one would hope that it was still able to read GeoPackage, or I would have enough warning to be able to get it out of GeoPackage and into something else uh, if if necessary. I and mean, if you look back on, uh, as I tried to fairly recently, I wanted to, to read uh, my MBA um, uh, reports from uh, 1988, and they were all written in Word 90, uh, no, Word 6 or something, I couldn't. I can't read those documents anymore. And that taught me I need to have a much more rigorous approach with this project to making sure that I'm migrating the data formats as I move forward. Um, and the idea is that provided I can find somewhere to put the data, then somebody else could come along in 10 years, 20 whatever years time, and as long as they can still read the data, they could then get the brightest, shiniest, nicest front end to display it and, and visualize it. Um, and at the moment, as I say, I'm using QGIS as the, as the management system. And then I'm using QGIS Cloud as the way of getting it up onto, the, up onto the web so that anybody can see it. I'm not particularly happy with the technology. But the trouble is that all of the alternatives which are better are proprietary. And going back to that issue of how long will the company continue to support it? How long will it exist as a company? Uh, I mean, after um, uh, Geomob, one of the uh, commercial entities came to me and said, we will give you our technology at cost um, because we, we like this project. We want it to happen. The problem is, even if it's the bestest technology in the world, will it still be there in five years' time? Do I invest in, in tying myself to that? Um, and I'm not sure that I should be. I, I still haven't made made my mind up on that. Um, yeah, I, 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 this is the dilemma, right? I mean, because um, you know, there, there's an argument to be made for you know, if you had the support of some company or whatever, and you could rely on, you know, they would help you, and think it would help you to move faster, maybe. But exactly, the, the long-term viability of it. But that raises the other issue about where the data is stored. Uh, so one option, of course, is you just throw it up into the cloud somewhere somewhere where it's free and will just sit there forever, where people can download it under Creative Commons or whatever and do with it what they will. But I'm not convinced that such a specialized area as this, is that's the right place to go. So I've started asking around at museums and so on, uh, and they say, oh, Mr. Brandt, delighted to have your wonderful uh, data and, and so on. But I'm afraid we really need to ask you to leave a, a significant uh, dowry uh, in your will because so the, the running costs of this, let's say, is £1,000 a year. And most museums immediately say, oh, well, you've got to leave us £1,000 a year in perpetuity so that we continue to, to pay for the website uh, um, uh, storage and the, the URL and all the other little bits and pieces of plumbing that you need in order to make the thing work. But even if they don't do that, they are so worried that they're going to take on something which they did then need to maintain and they need to go out to a commercial entity because museums are not uh, technical, generally. 
um, they need to go out to a commercial entity to pay a programmer to port the data or to change the front end or to manage the website in some way. So one of the big issues is finding an organization. It has to be an organization, not an individual, because otherwise the problem is just kicked down the road for another five years while someone replaces me as a terribly keen person to keep this thing going, who's prepared to pay the thousand pounds a year and then all of their time. But when they drop dead, go do lally, whatever, uh, then the same problem arises, just kick down the down the road a, a few more years. So it needs to be an organization. You need, yeah, it needs to be some institution or a museum or a university or something of this nature that can last. But that's exactly the point. You're, they, they need to have the specialized skills. And presumably those skills will evolve, as you said, like, you know, whatever the new tool is in 20 years or whatever. So it needs someone that then has those skills, has the can invest the time to understand your project, understand the data, understand how it's organized. It's not minor. I mean, maintenance is so hard. It's so hard. Absolutely. Now, the, the Americans have a slightly different approach in that their museums, you can go to them and say, hi, I've got this great project and lots of data and so on. And they say, that's fantastic. We'll take it off your hands. And we will now go and fundraise to right. pay for all of the things. Whereas the UK museums tend to be, you've got to pay up front because they don't want to go and fundraise for this sort of thing. I may be doing them doing down. I'm just talking about the ones I've talked to. Um, and then there is a, another alternative where uh, uh, universities are increasingly getting into this world because they are um, having to maintain large amounts of research data. So PhDs and so on write their, their thesis and it's normally now supported, at least in the science and engineering area, by vast amounts of technical data. And that has to be stored somewhere and maintained somewhere. So universities are beginning to uh, try and tackle this problem. And it may be that I need to find a, a friendly museum, a friendly university rather than a museum. Well, that strikes me as it would probably be a good fit in that universities also have, you know, libraries and uh, archivists and uh, so... Maybe that is the way to go. So, just to clarify, are you are you looking for people to help you on this project? I mean, not just in, in, either be it in a financial sense or actually, you know, roll up their sleeves and um, get their hands dirty, creating the data, managing the data. Is that is that something you would welcome or not yet? Or okay, so two levels. The, the first is um, while I'm collecting uh, the data to answer my questions one and two, um, how and where. Um, then uh, I'm obviously interested in anybody who can supply me with primary um, uh, source data or references to it. Um, so it maps uh, of, of the time, where things were, lists of grid references, orders, those sorts of things. And, and you know, obviously I'm, I'm tracking through the military museums and the county record offices and so on as I go further and further down into the detail. Um, so anybody who's got those sorts of things, then that, that's great. Uh, I'm interested in that. Um, when I get to stage three, then I'm interested in volunteers who are interested in a particular part of the military machine uh, and therefore would be prepared to, to um, go through the war diaries and find out where units were at what times and, and so on. Um, 
In the interim, there's a technology question. So if there are people who think they've got answers to my problems, which are what technology stack should I use and how am I going to keep this going in the long term, then, of course, I'm interested in talking to those sorts of people. At the moment, I don't need others to go and, and trawl through the archives and drag things out. Although if they happen to be interested in a particular aspect, then it may be that they've already gone through some of those, which would help me and save me time having to go and find them myself. Um, so that, that's where I'm looking for, for, for people. Money, uh, you know, I, I sold my business. I'm, I'm you know... Uh, I haven't seen my my uh, energy bill for next year yet, so I don't know whether I'm rich or poor. But I I don't I'm not looking for funding for any of this. Um, other than in the long term, when I have to hand it on, um, then is there a way of of getting a museum or whatever to take it on? And if that requires funding, then then you know there's a philanthropist or a uh, uh, some organisation which funds this sort of thing. Then yes, that would be interesting, but not now. You know, five years away. Okay, well, then uh, I encourage any listeners that um, think they have those technical skills and, and are interested in the topic to get involved. I mean, I guess you have the benefit of, it, it, it's, a, it's a, let's say, a, a kind of a glamorous project, right? I mean, D-Day is a momentous <laughs> thing, and maybe, you know, you start out by saying logistics isn't that glamorous, but, uh, you know, D-Day, I do think uh, you're absolutely correct. There will be a, a growth in interest. I, you know, I guess we're still some, some ways off from the 100th year uh, anniversary. But, um, I, you know, I think more and more now the, the, the last participants in World War II are kind of dying off. And I, I mm -hmm. feel like I read more and more articles about that. You know, the, these, these last living connections with that time yeah. are kind of dropping out. And... Um, so there is, I feel like there is more awareness of it and, and um, historical interest. So I suspect there should be people out there who, who want to get involved with the project. Um, I guess that then creates another issue for you, though, in terms of managing. You know, the, there's nothing worse than managing volunteers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the quality control issue. So if I do go crowdsourced, then, um, you know, Wikipedia works because uh, if you and I both want have an interest in a particular subject we write our stuff up in wikipedia and we haggle about it and eventually some some uh, uh, consensus appears between us and and so on but this is such a specialized area that there will only be one person probably who's going to put the information in so there's no there's no quality check on it um, and unfortunately an awful lot of of the d-day stuff there's a huge amount of hearsay um, you know, people said, oh, yeah, my grandmother said that she took tea out to the Canadians when they came through this particular town. Well, you know, there's no primary evidence to say the Canadians were there. Um, and actually, they were probably Americans. Um, well, and wasn't there also a lot of sort of deliberate obfuscation, right? You know, I mean, th there claiming, was quite a lot. Yeah, it's were here, but actually they were there and that type yeah. of thing. Uh, and, and so uh, the trouble is that, you know, if, if your grandmother said it, then it must be true. Well, right. actually, hearsay isn't good enough. You've got to find a primary source um, if, you're, if you're actually taking this thing seriously. Uh, and there, was, there was something on, on one of the Facebook groups that I'm in uh, yesterday where someone said as an absolute fact that something had been done at a particular place. And I'm going, no. It, it wasn't. It can't be. And of course, you can't just say it like that. You've got to say, well, I'm, 
I don't believe that that's the case. I'm, I'm doing a lot of research in this, and I can't find any evidence to prove your assertion, uh, even though you think it's true. Um, but if you can prove me wrong, please do. You know, show me some primary source, but don't show me a Wikipedia article. Um, yeah, difficult, difficult. I mean, this is a, a momentous task you've got in front of you. So, um, and what about, but anyway, keep... what about the military themselves? I mean, how do, do you, these, many of these units, or at least some of them, must still exist, right? Do they have archives and keep that? They, they, they do. So, so I'm I'm in touch with all of the major uh, logistic um, museums. Um, and we're trying to find ways where there's a mutual benefit of having their data on my website and my website pointing at their data and so on. Um, but regrettably, military museums aren't necessarily very commercial entities. And so when I come to it with a business, business head on saying, look, if you do this for me, I can do that for you. They, they sort of get all sort of, oh, that's all a bit commercial and, and so on. Um, so it, it's quite difficult talking to them, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm building relationships with them. And I think that there's a lot of information which I would like. Um, and, and of course, I'm doing a whole load of work for which they can use uh, because the, uh, that, that question about where did my grandfather go, the first point of call is normally to go to their regimental or core museum and ask the researcher there, where did my grandpa go? He was in such and such a unit. Um, and that wastes quite a lot of time of the researcher because they've got to go and dig through uh, a whole load of information. Whereas if they can either go straight to my website, get the information and hand it over, perhaps with some value add, which I can't do, or they just say, first point of call, go to the uh, the, the D-Day build-up website. Uh, and then if you've still got questions, come back and and I'll then charge you some some time to do more research. Um, but the first, first point of call, which is normally what it is enough for most people, um, then it's free. It's on the web already because I put it up there. Well, we should, yes, we should discuss it. So what's the current status? You do have a website up. With Absolutely. First, so so anyone who's interested in this can go to www.ddaybuildup.info. Uh, snazzy title, I know, but uh, it sort of says what it does on the tin. Uh, um, and uh, I am also a member of a rather bizarre uh, Facebook special interest group, which is private, so you need to ask to join, uh, but it's the D-Day Marshalling and Embarkation Areas Research Group. And when I found it, I thought, bloody hell, there's someone else who's interested. It's not someone else. There are 1,500 members of this group around the world. Uh, and I was amazed that there were so many people interested in the embarkation and marshalling of D-Day. Why? Who, who are these people? Do most of them come from a logistics background or a military uh, background? No, they're a complete mishmash. Old, young, uh, all over the world, quite a lot of Canadians and Americans, as you'd imagine, because they were interested in, in uh, involved in D-Day specifically, uh, and all over the UK. Uh, it's, it's, it's great. But as with all Facebook groups, there's a, a third who are um, uh, really, really keen and involved and exchange information and so on. I'd like to count myself in that third, if I'm allowed. Uh, there's a third who uh, are just interested and, and watch. And there's a third who actually ask stupid questions or make, make strange remarks or whatever and actually waste time rather than take the whole process forward. Um, but uh, it's 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 an interesting interesting mix, and I've met some of them in real life as well, uh, which is always bizarre when you suddenly someone who who you just just met through social media, you actually meet 
IRL. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So, um, how can people get in touch with you, Chris? Uh, okay, so so my my uh, um, website has has points to that. So ddaybuildup.info. Um, my email, Chris at barringtonbrown.co.uk, is until I get spammed by everybody, is, is available to uh, anybody who, uh, who wants to send information. Uh, and if you're that keen, uh, then join the, um, the Facebook group, um, D-Day Marshalling and Embarkation Areas Research. Uh, and I'm also on that, and I post quite a lot of maps and pictures and things on that um, because it's the most obvious place to get at people who are interested in it. Very nice. Well, um, I wish you luck with your with your efforts here, and uh, encourage anyone to get in touch that thinks they, they may be able to help. Um, but uh, of course, we we hope that you come back to to London and and uh, you know give us an update in a year or when whenever it's appropriate, and tell us how the project's going. Great. Thank you very much. I'd look forward to that. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter where our handle is geomob. Thanks for listening and hope to see you at a geomob event soon. Mm-hmm.